I'm excited to be here and jump into Ephesians once again with you. I've had a blast walking through this book so far. As I told you in the beginning, in the first three chapters, there have been no moral commands, nothing for you to obey. I hope you have enjoyed that. And today will be the last such sermon because in chapter four, Paul's going to start giving us some instructions, some directives. All right, he's given us some grand theological concepts so far. We've talked about the Trinity. We've talked about the atonement. We've talked about the new birth. We've talked about the church, the ecclesia, which is to the display of the glory of God. And now, before we get into chapter four and start getting some moral imperatives, some commands, he utters some very familiar words. Would you look with me at verse 14? He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. It sounds like Paul is about to pray again. Paul has already prayed once in this book. What is with this apostle that he's always hitting his knees? He's always praying. My friends, Paul is praying for the same reason that you and I should be always praying. And it's this. This is not in your notes, but it's worth writing down. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. The thing that we pursue as children of God is something that we cannot obtain on our own. And so it's, not, it's just not something that we decide to do. It's called holiness, all right? Uh, in, in the movie, the first Lord of the Rings movie, they're, 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 the fellowship is gathering to carry the ring into Mordor, and one of the members of the fellowship says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Well, my friends, one does not merely walk in holiness. It's not something you just wake up and you're like, I think I'm going to be holy today. It's not something that you do because you're, you're naturally inclined toward it or you pool your talents and attain this somehow. We need something. We need the fullness of God. And that is what Paul is praying for. Uh, we, we read in Colossians 2.9 that the fullness, all the attributes of the Trinity they dwell in Christ in bodily form. John tells us that from his fullness we have received. And so we have that same power in us. And so Paul is praying for that fullness to go to work because this is a central theme of the Christian faith. And this is kind of a blinding flash of the obvious. Christianity is not just a list of true statements. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts or good ideas, or a philosophy, or, or, or spiritual disciplines uh, about church attendance and worship and scripture memorization and all that stuff. It involves some of that, but it's this. Christianity is about us being molded and shaped and formed into the image of God's Son. That is what it's about. Have you ever heard the expression, you were, you were created in the image of God? Anybody ever told you you were created in the image of God? I would say more accurately... That mankind was created in the image of God. But mankind today in their fallen state, apart from Christ, there's little about us that resembles God because of our fallen nature. Adam was created in the image of God. He was perfect. He was sinless. He looked like God in terms of his spiritual nature. And then he sinned. And from that moment forward, Adam and every descendant he would ever have, which includes you and I, we would then begin to resemble more and more our new father, the devil. And so God instituted a plan from the very beginning whereby he would restore, ultimately, his image in mankind. And he would do it 
through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. Think of it like a, like a sculptor. Have you ever seen a sculptor work? He's got a block of marble or something in front of him. And he can look at that block of marble and he can see what nobody else can see. We just see a lump of, of rock, right? He looks at that and he knows exactly what the end product needs to be because he's looking at a model. There's a model right over here. And he's chipping away and chiseling and he doesn't take his eyes off of that model because that is the goal. My friends, you and I are that block of marble. The sculptor is God. The model is Jesus Christ. And in one hand, the sculptor's got a chisel. That is the word of God. In the other hand, he's got a hammer, and that is the Holy Spirit. And his gaze is fixed on Jesus as he chips away at you all throughout your life. And he slowly transforms you. He shapes you. He crafts you into a reasonable facsimile of Jesus Christ. And we call that process sanctification, where you are made into the image of of the Son of God. And that thought begins right here. In this passage, there is a passion. God, make me like Jesus. Is that your passion today? Do you want to be holy as he is holy? If you desire holiness and you're trying to get there on your own power, you're gonna be frustrated. How many of you ever get frustrated with yourself? You're doing good, right? You know, you're, 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 you're enacting some discipline in your life. You're working really hard. And then one day you just fall flat. And you just think, man, I'm such a screw up. I'm such a failure. If you're like me and you get frustrated like that, today's lesson is gonna be good because we're gonna look at some things that we need to remember if we desire holiness. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for your blessing to be upon us today. As we open your word, may your spirit illuminate this for us. May we understand it. May we be encouraged by it. May we be motivated and empowered to be what you have called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let us look now at some things to remember if you desire holiness. And the first thing I want you to remember is that God has a vested interest in his children becoming holy. That's your first point. Uh, God wants this to happen. And so that should give you great comfort that this is his will. He's got a vested interest. You are his child. He wants this for you. Paul has prayed in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named I want you to underline that word family, very important concept of family because he's presenting this idea of a heavenly father and, and, and we are his children. You got family in heaven, family on earth. Uh, the Jews considered the angels to be the sons of God. We see that phrase attached to them, the sons of God. It's in Genesis 6, it's in Job. And then they, the Jews considered mankind to be the offspring of God. And so he, God, is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so there is this notion of him as a benevolent father. He is the paradigm. Every, every idea that we have about fatherhood, the standard for that idea is God. Fatherhood does not originate in mankind. It does not originate in the angelic realm. It starts with God the Father. And he is a good, benevolent father. I know what kind of father you had. Some fathers are good, some are bad. This is the ultimate father right here, and he is good. Jesus says in Matthew 7, What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, you give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, you give him a snake. He says, he says if, basically, if you, and you're evil, like you're corrupt, you're fallen, 
You're, you're a sinful human being. If you give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to you? His, his benevolence uh, is unmatched. We cannot even compare to it. How many of you love to give gifts to your kids? You enjoy it. I love giving presents to my kids. Uh, just the other day, I bought some stuff for my, my daughters. Valentine's is coming up. I bought one a little necklace and I bought one a ring. Uh, they've already got them. I, I, I just gave them to them, you know. We had a daddy-daughter dance last night. I took my seven-year-old to that. I never got to take my big girl to any dances growing up. They didn't have them. And so I just, I gave her, I gave her her ring. And uh, my wife was like, you have no patience. You, do, you can't even wait, Graham. And, and she's right. I love to give my kids, and I love to give my kids what they want, not what they need. You know, I like to give them what they want. I just want to see that look on their face. I don't give them what they need. That's, that's their mother's job. You know, she knows, she's, she's like the, the, you know, she's the one who knows this is what they need. We, do, we don't want to spoil them because we don't want them to end up in prison, you know? And so you got to have that, that give and take in parenting. But I just love to give kids what they want, you know, and have fun with it. I asked my wife one Christmas a few years ago, what are we giving the kids? She's like, books. I go, books. She goes, it's what they need. And I was imagining what that would be like as they unwrap presents on Christmas morning after a hectic December. And I'm explaining to my seven-year-old, Everly, honey, this is, we got you war and peace. Yeah. No, I, I know you wanted a toy, but this is Tolstoy. See, Tolstoy. You're going to love it. You know, I just, I just want to see that look in their face. And, and, and I want them to play with it, you know, because really I want to I play too. And... Uh, God help me when I become a grandpa. It's, it's going to be crazy. But God loves to give more than any of us ever could possibly give. His benevolence is just unmatched. And Paul says this is a God who is able to give not merely what we want, but what we need and what we cannot possibly obtain on our own. And he says uh, in the scripture that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And I'd like you to underline the phrase inner being because he's giving something that is supernatural. It is not external. It is internal. It's something no earthly father could ever give. And he will not give something that entertains you for a day and ends up in the back of the closet. No, this is in order that you may be strengthened in your inner being. What does that mean in your notes? Your inner being is ground zero for holiness. He goes to the heart of it. He goes to the crux of your conversion. This is where holiness is generated. It's not on the outside, it's on the inside, okay? You, you don't become holy on, from the outside. Have you noticed, you who are born again, who are Christians, have you noticed that when you got saved, God did not redeem your flesh? You still got that, don't you? Your, your flesh is still fallen. You're saved on the inside. You're redeemed. Your soul is saved. Your flesh is still corrupt. Man, one day we're gonna get a redeemed body, a glorious body and the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed, Scripture says. And, and when we have that body, we will not contend with the things that we presently contend with. It would have been nice if I got that when I got saved. I would love to not have allergies anymore in this fallen form. I would love to not have to deal with carbohydrates and the effects of those. You know, I, I would love to not have to deal with sin and temptation. Wouldn't that be nice to not have to deal with temptation? But we still have to contend with it. Why? Because we still have the flesh. So in this unredeemed exterior, how do we deal with temptation? 
What do you do? Just try harder? Does that work when you're dealing with temptation? No, it doesn't. And here's a sub point for you in your notes. You can't defeat the problem of the flesh through the power of the flesh. Your sheer willpower is not going to get you past temptation. It isn't going to start with you because that's the problem. Your flesh is the problem. The power of the flesh is what enslaves you to begin with. As a fallen creation, it makes no sense to try to use what is, what is uh, uh, innate to your humanness to overcome sin and temptation. You don't use what is corrupt to overcome that which is corrupt. It's like putting out a fire with a flamethrower. doesn't work. doesn't work. You need something internal. Now, fortunately, you've got something that you didn't have before. You have something new on the inside. You've got something called the Holy Spirit. It is an altogether different power. Paul writes in Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, that's past tense, you have become obedient from the flesh? No, obedient from the heart. From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. We've got an obedience, a willingness to honor the Lord that we didn't have before. It was not innate to our flesh. He's given us a new heart. He's given us a spirit that was not in us before we came to faith in Christ. And so you now have a shot. You are no longer hardwired to sin. There is an option for you that you may live according to. You've been delivered over, he says, and the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and there's a new conscience and there's a new will. We call that the new man. It's on the inside. You still got the old man on the outside, new man on the inside. And when the old man disobeys God, what does the Spirit do? There's a check there. The Spirit checks you. And he says, hey, 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 over here. Come this way. Walk with me. Submit to me. Some people think that when Christians sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. I wouldn't frame it that way. I would say the Holy Spirit convicts us of our righteousness. That's what Jesus says in John, that he will convict the world, the lost, of sin so that they come to faith. When you come to faith in Christ, the ministry of the Spirit changes toward you. He no longer convicts you of your sin, your need, because now you're in Christ. Now when your flesh disobeys, he convicts you of your righteousness. What is that? That's not a reprimand. That's a reminder. What is he reminding you of? He's reminding you of your identity. This is who you are. That's not who you are. This is who you are. And so in your notes, when you deal with temptation, You've got to remember who God says you are. Who are you? According to scripture, you are the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. You are not who the world says you are. You are not who your friends say you are, your family, your coworkers, your classmates. You are who God says you are. My mom always told me this phrase. Whenever I would leave the house, she'd say, son, remember who you are. Doesn't that sound like a mom? Remember who you are. Like, I could not leave the house without her saying that. It became a game for me. I tried to close the door before she would say it. And it would be like that far and she'd still get in. Remember who you are. And she would never fail. And it got stuck right here. And now I'm, I'm telling it to you. What did she mean by it? She said, remember who you are. There's a practical aspect to that. Remember your last name, okay? Your last name is Grim. all right? You represent your father and I. Don't embarrass us, boy. And then spiritually... Remember who you are. You are in Christ. You represent Jesus. He lives in you. Listen to him. Don't listen to your friends. 
You listen to the Lord wherever you go. And Paul wants us to remember that identity. Jesus says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, capital S, sets you free, you will be free indeed. How long is that? If you are born again, has the son set you free? How long are you free for? Till you sin again? No, no, you're free forever. We're free forever. I think we sang that today in worship. And so we've got to live like we're free forever. But when we sin, we are forgetting that freedom. We're free from sin. We're not a slave. When we sin, we're acting like a slave even though we're not. That means we're not remembering our identity. In Christ, There's a tried and true illustration of a baby elephant in the circus. And the circus workers, the way they kept this baby elephant in place is they tied a rope around his ankle. They tied the other end to a little stake that they drove into the ground. Baby elephant did not budge. Over the years, that thing grew into a magnificent, powerful beast. How did they keep that huge elephant in place when he was fully grown? The same flimsy rope and the same little stake. He didn't move. Why not? Because in his mind, he's still that weak little baby elephant. As sometimes Christians, they lose the battle here. They think of themselves the way they used to be, not as they are in the eyes of God. We've got to remember who we are, who he says we are. And then Paul wants us to understand another point. And in your notes, it's this. God is a permanent resident in your life, not a tenant. Not a tenant. If you're just a tenant, if you're, if you're renting, you can't renovate. You can't rip up the lawn, put something else in. You can't tear down a wall and, and do something else there. You don't have that right because you don't own the place. But if you're, if you're a permanent resident, if you own, if you're the master of the house, you can make changes. And so Paul says in verse 17 that he's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That he may dwell. There's a Greek word, uh, oikos. Oikos. It means uh, oikos. You may pronounce it oikos. It means house or home. It also means really good yogurt. Um, and in this verse, there's, there's, a, there's a phrase. It's a, it's a compound Greek word, kate, katoikeo. Katoikeo. All right? Kata means down and oikos means home. And so literally, katokeo, down home. Sounds like we're in the South, doesn't it? We're getting down home. What this means is, Paul is praying that Christ would come in and he would settle down in your home. He would just make himself at home. You ever say that to people? People come in your house, you're like, now make yourself at home. You don't mean it, right? Not really. You're being nice. You want them to feel welcome. Hey, just make yourself at home while you're here for a limited time and then move on you know when the, when the Super Bowl's over out you go you know take that dish with you that you brought and uh <laughs> and, and you know Ben Franklin said guests and fish stink after three days all right Jesus is meant to move in and stay there he's he's laying down roots he's he is a permanent resident Christ should make himself at home in your life. One Christian author said, think of your life as a house. 
Your whole life is a house. The door knocks. It's Jesus. He opens the door. The res- you open the door. Christ, come on in. You welcome him in. Make yourself at home. And he walks through your house. And he walks into your kitchen. He opens your fridge. He looks in there. He's like, what do we got in here? And you got some dried up onions in there. That looks good. You, oh, oh, your zucchini has got mold on it. You know, you got some, well, there's a lot of expired products down here. There's some empty calorie stuff. Man, this is, this is what you eat. This is what you consume. This is not healthy. I tell you what, I'm going to take this out. I'm going I'm to replace it with the manna of God. I'm going to put the pure milk of the word in here. This is what you'll eat from now on. He wanders into your den. He goes, ah, this is where you spend your time. Huh? This is where you, you get your entertainment. Hmm. You know, I'm going to introduce you to some activities that you need to know. I'm going I'm to introduce you to the fellowship of the saints and the ministry of the saints. This, this is an adventure that nothing compares to. No movie you've ever seen compares to this. No game you've ever played is on par with this. And then he goes into your study and he's like, oh, I like this room. Yeah, no, this is great. I want, this is where I want to meet with you every morning, just you and me. We're going to meet right here. And then he says, something stinks. And he starts to make a beeline for the closet on the other side of the room. And you run ahead of him. You go, no, 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 Lord. No, no, I'm sorry. You, you can't, you can't, you can't go in there. You can't go in there. And he says, no, wait a minute. There's something dead in there. If I'm gonna live here and have fellowship with you, I, I, I gotta clean that out. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I, you, look, make yourself at home in the whole house. You can't go in here. This is, this is just for me. Uh, my child, look, if you and I are gonna live in harmony, I can have no part with that just so you understand. And you refuse to let him clean that out. And he walks away. Now, he doesn't leave your house, but it's as though he's not even there because there's no growth in the relationship. There's nothing that that becomes more intimate between the two of you. And you just kind of coexist. And you think you've got a great situation for a while. You've got the Lord over here, all your spiritual things in their proper boxes, and here, sequestered away, you've got your fleshly desires, and this is just for you. But over time, you're eaten away by shame and guilt, and you're miserable, and you try to do something about it. You think, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can take care of this on my own. And you try to clean that closet, but you just, you just fail and you get covered in stench, and it's a fruitless exercise, and you're so defeated, and finally you just say, Lord, you do it. He says, I've got this. He goes in there, he opens that closet, he takes the dead thing out, he scrubs it, he disinfects it, he cleans it deep, he repaints it, it looks vibrant. And pretty soon, he does that to the whole house. And it looks fantastic, and you're walking around, and you're like, I never knew it could be like that. You know, Lord, you do a lot better with my house than I do. You take the keys. Here, let me sign the deed over to you, and then I'll live in your house. Do you treat Jesus like a tenant, or do you treat him like the master of the house? That's what Paul is praying for. And this is called lordship. And how does lordship happen? He goes on and he says in the scripture that you being rooted and grounded in love. And I want to stop right there because you got to understand what that means. What does that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. In your notes, being rooted and grounded in love is not 
a command to be obeyed. It's a fact to be embraced. I told you there were no moral directives yet, and there's not. This is what you are to believe. It's going gonna, it's gonna to empower how you behave, you see. But you've got to get this. This is a fact. It's a reality, Christian. You are this. You are rooted and grounded in love. Paul gives us two illustrations with those words. Rooted is a, is a biological illustration. Our roots are in the soil of Christ and he brings us life. And we are grounded. That's an architectural illustration. Christ is our foundation. We are built upon him and this is what you are. You don't have to obey this. You simply have to believe it. He loves you. We sang that, didn't we? He really loves us. He really loves If you can accept that, God can unleash you like you've never dreamed. Oh, your obedience has nothing to do with his love. Nothing. You, you, if you obey Christ, he won't love you anymore. If you disobey Christ, he won't love you any less. If you're a believer, if you're, if you're his child, all right? And he wants you to obey. But we've, we've all got children. Sometimes our children please us. Sometimes they don't through their obedience. But we don't love them less Our love for them ought to be unconditional. God's love for you is unconditional and it's the embrace and the understanding of that love and you are to understand it because Paul goes on in verse 18. He says, this is that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And in your notes, this means you are meant to understand the vastness of God's love. How how vast is it? You are to comprehend that. Catalambano uh, in the Greek, you know what that word means for comprehend? It means to take hold, to get your arms around. It seems impossible to get your arms around something like the love of God, but to what extent are we to understand that? Well, he says he wants you to know all the dimensions of it. The height, the breadth, the length, the depth. Those come out of the Old Testament, by the way. From the book of Job. Remember all the mess that Job went through? And the next time you feel sorry for yourself, just remember what Job endured. Job had some good friends and some bad friends that gave him advice. One of them said this. This is good advice. He said, and uh, this is a guy named Zophar in Job 11, verse 5. He says, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he's manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. As bad as you've got it, as much as you think life ought to be treating you better, just know God requires less of you than your guilt deserves. Is that a good thing for us to remember? When we get entitled, when we think we're all that, just, just know this, God, God requires less of you than your guilt deserves. He's forgiven so much. There's stuff you don't even understand or know about that he's forgiven. You, you have sins you're not even aware of that he has forgiven. And he goes on, he says to Job, can you find out the deep things of God? Depth. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? That's the height of his love. It is deeper than Sheol. That's hell. That's the depth of his love. Its measure is longer than the earth. That's his length. And broader than the sea. That's the breadth of God's love. And you take those dimensions. You could drop them into the New Testament. And you look at a verse like John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. The world, that's the breadth of his love. That he gave his only son. That is the length of his love. That's how far he would go for you and I. That whoever believes in him should not perish. 
Where do we go when we perish? We go to hell. That's the depth of his love. Nothing deeper. But have everlasting life, eternal life. Where? In heaven. There's nothing higher. That is the height of his love. These are the dimensions of the love of God. And we are to understand this and comprehend it. Paul says, and this is an important phrase, you're to comprehend it with all the saints. With all the saints. And what this says in your notes is that we learn and grow in community. How can I possibly know the love of God? You do it within the body. You do it with other believers. You talk about it. You study it. You ponder it. You pray over it. You, you, you proclaim it to one another. We grow in numbers. We're meant to grow in community, in fellowship with believers. Listen, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're here because you're here with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? We have small groups here. Not enough. We're going to be ramping that up. And I'm excited to be talking about uh, the expansion of small group community because I think it's valuable. I think it's important. I think it's biblical to be in community with other believers. If you're watching us online today, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you've joined us electronically. But listen to me now. You need to get yourself in church. You find a community of believers where you can go and you can fellowship with them unless, unless uh, you know, physical issues keep you from it. You gotta be there because that is the ideal way for you to grow in your faith. It is the design of God. He models community for us. How does he do that? He's a triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. He, he, he is in community with himself and he wants that for you and I. There's no Lone Ranger Christians. That is not a thing. You've heard about people who go off on some journey of self-discovery and they get alone in a, in a cave somewhere and they assume the lotus position and they achieve some secret wisdom or higher awareness or some such. There's a Greek word for that, balagnas. We get our word baloney. It's not really a Greek word, but it should be. It should be. Uh, we grow in community. And Paul says in verse 19, he says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> what now? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How do I do that, Paul, exactly? How do I know what surpasses knowledge? Hey, know that, that unknowable thing. What? How? Well, look at the rest of the verse. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You, you, can't, you can't look at to know that which is unknowable unless you have the rest of that verse because that explains it. And what this means in your notes is that knowing Christ's love goes beyond intellect and emotion. This is not book learning. This is not theological content that you pack your brain with. This is not an emotional high. This is not going somewhere and having an experience and now you know the love of God. No, uh, it, it can't be separated from the filling with the fullness of God, you understand? That is the result of really getting your arms around the love of God. When you understand that you are rooted and grounded in love and you embrace that and you understand the depth and the height and the breadth and the length of all of that, you are filled with the fullness of God. The fullness of God are the attributes of God. The word filled in the Greek, pleru is the word, uh, it does not mean, I'll tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean if I had a container and I fill it up with water and it comes all the way to the brim. That's not what this means. 
Uh, later in this book, in chapter five, Paul's gonna use a phrase. He's gonna say, do not be drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why does he preface that saying, don't be drunk with wine? He's not saying don't be filled up with wine. He's saying don't be drunk with wine. When you're drunk with wine, what is the wine doing to you? It's controlling you. You are under its influence. You are controlled by that substance. Don't be that. Instead, be pleru, be filled, is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. It means that he has control over every aspect, every area of your life. You are submitted to him. And he runs that show. You are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And you, if, to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you get more spirit. It means he gets more you. You, got, you with me? And so Paul says that this is the result of embracing the love of God. And if you embrace the love of God and you're filled with his attributes, what is the chief attribute that comes out of you? It's love. And what makes you most like Jesus? Because to be made holy is to be made like Jesus. <laughs> You're like Jesus if you love sacrificially. If you love sacrificially. Love is the key to becoming like Christ. Galatians 5.14 says the whole law is filled up, is, is fulfilled in one word, love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? What are the fruit of the Spirit? What's the first fruit of the Spirit listed? Love. Joy, peace, everything feeds off of love. In Colossians 3, we see all these attributes of God that we are to have. And in verse 14, after listing them all, it says, and above all these, put on love. Because to be like Christ is to be loving, to love sacrificially. Some of you are thinking about people you know that are not very lovable. And you're like, love them sacrificially? Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't see it. I just don't see it. That's, that's not possible. I don't think it's possible. Glad you said that. Paul thought you might say that. Look at verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Hey, you better memorize that verse. You better memorize that. You are meant to come to the end of verse 19 and say, this is ridiculous. Paul doesn't know me. He has not seen my work. If he had, he would not write such a stupid statement. Because that ain't me, all right? I can't do that. How can God transform this kind of a person to do what only Jesus can do? If that's you today, if that's your perspective, you need to understand the next point in your notes. Nothing, 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 nothing is impossible for God. Nothing. How many times in Scripture do we see something to that effect? God said it to Abraham and to Moses and Zerubbabel and Jeremiah. Uh, the angel Gabriel says it to Mary in Luke. Uh, Jesus says it at least a couple of times in his ministry. He says in Matthew 19, uh, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Mary is told in Luke 1, for nothing will be impossible for God. Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? The prophet Jeremiah is told by God, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Folks, this is but a scintilla of all the scripture that speak to this idea, this notion. And God laughs at the idea that, that there's something he can't do. And that means he can take pitiful you and transform you 
and mold you and shape you into the image of his son who is perfect, who loves sacrificially. And he says, if you are willing to accept what I have done in you, I can unleash you. And some people go, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not saying I don't think that there's anything that God can't do. I, I, I know that nothing's impossible for God. It's me. It's me. Paul's saying, I'm not done. Let me finish. And he goes on in this verse. He's already said he could do all that we ask or imagine. And then he, he continues saying, according to the power at work within us. Okay? His power, not your power. It's his power. At work, that's present tense. He's working right now. Where? In us. He's at work. So he can do all that we would dream according to the power that's already going on in here. If you're a believer, he's already working. You just got to join him in his work and let him work through you. Uh, Henry Varley was a preacher in the 1800s, a good friend of D.L. Moody. He said the following. He said, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. What if every believer saw themselves the way God sees them? embraced the fact that they are rooted and grounded in his love, understood that his power is already at work in them, and lived according to that in submission to his will. What if we did that? I don't think the world has ever seen that fully, but he's able to do it, and he's at work in you, and he wants this to happen. And the ultimate purpose is in verse 21, and this should come as no surprise. You never get away from this. This is so that... To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We have talked a multitude of times about how the glory of God is his primary occupation. He is obsessed with bringing glory to himself. The reason for everything he does is that he received glory. And the church, we talked about this last week, how the church exists so that the angels in heaven would, would, would glorify him. And here in this verse, he says, the church, through uh, the church, glory to Jesus throughout all generations. Guess who that is? That's not angels. Angels don't have generations. We do. And so we got glory to God in the heavenlies uh, as the church is, is beheld by the angels. And now we have glory on the earth among mankind as they behold the church. You see, what God wants is the next point in your notes. When we acknowledge his work in us, we make his glory visible to others. When you live like you believe what he says about himself and about you and about what he's done in you and you live like that, you are bringing glory to God through your life and the world is watching and wondering and marveling and they end up glorifying God. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light Shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Who is they? The world. The lost. You are, you are presenting Christ through your life. And the ultimate goal is that they glorify God. The word for glory is doxa. You know what it literally means? Opinion. Say what? Opinion. You see, through glorifying God, we are, that is an evangelistic thing. We are changing people's opinions about God, about Christ. 
If I invited a guest speaker, okay? You, you've been to events where there was a guest speaker, nobody in the audience knew him, and there's somebody that comes out and they, they, they introduce the guest. How do those introductions usually go? Well, they list all the credentials. They list a bunch of accomplishments. They say who this person is, what they've done. They build them up, right? Basically, they glorify them. What's the point of all that? It's so that the people are ready to listen. You, you, you alter the opinion of the folks about who is about to make an entrance on that stage so that he will command their attention. You're changing opinions. By your life, Christian, you are laying the groundwork. Christ is coming. Our job is to change the opinion of the world on who he is because they don't understand. They're in darkness and so we glorify him so that they will receive him and they will glorify themselves, the Lord of hosts. And Paul ends this with one simple word. He says, amen. He says, amen. Aramaic word. We all know this word. We've all longed for this word at times when somebody prays too long and there's food getting cold. You know what the word means? It means so be it. So be it. What does so be it mean? It means I agree. I concur. What are we agreeing with God in this prayer right here? We're agreeing that he can use us, that he can make us holy. He can make us like Jesus. You need to know that. And you need to agree with that. Because last point, it's wisdom to agree with what God has said and done. I make it a habit not to argue with the Almighty. Just a good idea. So be it, Lord. Are you arguing with God about what he wants to do in you? Just say yes. Submit. Believe that he loves you. And once you accept that love, he can unleash you. If you know how to believe, you'll know how to behave. And he will do it through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group. I just pray your blessings upon them. May they walk each day in the knowledge of the vastness of the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it's not something the human mind can fathom, and yet as we grow in that knowledge, I, I, I look forward to eternity because I believe fully that we will learn into eternity. And even eternity may not seem like long enough to plumb the depths and the heights and the, and, and the, the length and the, the breadth of your love, Lord. But we, we want to begin to get our arms around it right now so that we will be assured of our identity because only in walking in that identity can you use us the way that you intend as a representative that looks like Jesus. I pray your blessing upon everybody in this room today. In Jesus' name, amen.